I love my home. I do. I love it so much. But I also love vacationing. I work a lot. And sometimes it, it bothers me to think how often I'm not actually there to enjoy it. I mean, whether I'm going on a fun vacation with Justin or traveling to New York for work, there's big chunks of time that I don't get to relish that sofa I pined so hard to buy or bake cookies that I can make with my stand-up mixer that I got for Christmas. And I realize there is a way that I might feel better. If I became an Airbnb host, I could make use of the space when I'm away and make some extra cash. I mean, my next vacation could essentially pay for itself. Like my extra Airbnb cash could go into an account for that trip to Paris I've been pondering. And then basically the trip is free. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I know that's not technically how math works, but okay. Also, if we're saving money hosting, this means I could do some shopping, right? And the weather is also very nice in Paris at this time of the month. And I just feel like it might be, okay, you know what? I'm going to talk to Justin about this. Um, thank you for letting me share this epiphany with you. I appreciate it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of Dinners on Me was recorded on June 12th, 2023. Hi, it's Jesse. Today on the show, the star of Star Trek and the boys in the band, my dear friend, Zachary Quinto. We'll talk about how his mom's passing changed his perspective on life, our early days hitting up the Silver Lake gay bars, and his special relationship with the original Spock, Leonard Nimoy. He was just a great cheerleader and a great support. And the thing that I would never have anticipated from my experiences was just how close we would be. There was something very paternal about the relationship that I shared with Leonard. This is Dinners on Me, and I'm your host, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I met Zach Quinto about, oh gosh, 20 years ago after a solo cabaret show I was performing at Joe's Pub in New York City. The show was called Adios Pantalones, if anyone is curious. He had come to the show with a mutual friend of ours who I think was trying to set us up. Even though the internet is insistent on connecting us romantically, we've actually never dated. We did, however, become very close friends, and our connection only deepened after I moved to Los Angeles. Zach had relocated to the West Coast a few years before me and took it upon himself to show me around all the cool parts of LA's East Side. Even though Zach and I are in constant communication with each other, I haven't seen him in person for nearly a year, and so I was so excited to catch up with him in the city that initially brought us together, New York. I asked Zach to join me at American Bar in the West Village. American Bar has only been open for a few years, but it has the energy and feel of a New York institution. It has these chic yellow walls, a beautiful terrazzo bar, and these old school brass rails around the cocktail lounge. It's always packed. I was so glad to see them survive the pandemic, and I thought, why not invite Zach to a place I enjoy so much that's also in my neighborhood? Okay, let's get to the conversation. I'm so happy to see you. I like the, the summer mustache. Do you like it? Yeah, I do. Thank you. I had a beard for uh, this last job, and then I came home from it, and I kept the beard for um, like a month afterwards. And then the other day, I just got the impulse to get rid of it. And then as I was shaving it, I did that thing that you do. You did you the do, thing where you pause. Which, yeah, like, let's you're just, like, hmm, could I make this work? Yeah, like, I did the exact same thing. You shave a goatee into it, and then you're like, well, mm -hmm. that looks ridiculous. So then you lose that and had a mustache. <laughs> and I was like, that actually looks fine. 
So yeah. I've kept it. Thank I, you. I dig it. Thanks. It's Hi, how are you? Hi. How are we doing today? We're doing good, thanks. Thank you so much. Okay, here we are. Thank Welcome you very much. Welcome to American Bar. Have we been here before? We have. Both. Have we been here together? together we just, awesome. I was just reminded. Yeah. We have a couple great items for you here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say we're really known for our salads. We can make most of our mm-hmm. salads vegan. Um, our chopped salad and our peanut chicken salad are our two most popular. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we also we just added our avocado toast to the menu. You can add smoked salmon or lobster to that, and it comes with a, a jammy poached egg on the side. A jammy egg. That sounds... What does that sound? Jammy egg. What the hell is a jammy egg? It's like a soft-boiled egg, I right? see. Yeah. Jammy egg. Does it sound appealing to you I would or no? come up with a different name for oh, that. No, I, I, think, I, I think jammy is like a great word. A jammy egg. As a cookbook Ooh. author myself, yes, I've used yes, the word. Yes, yes, right. Fair. You have. Do you want to just get those things and share them, or do you want to... See, I, if I was to order anything on the menu, I yeah, would yeah, get the me. Greek chop. While you're right. doing, do you want me to get any water started for sure, us? Sure, sure. Water would be Still nice. sparkling or tap? Still fine for me. I'm yeah. also going to have an iced tea. Okay, sure. Uh, and I'll have a lemonade, please. Thank you. I see. So and then we can kiss, and it's an Arnold Palmer. <laughs> Speaking of kissing, you really brought it right to the heart of the matter, haven't you, Jesse? What? Dating. <laughs> Didn't mean to bring it up this early. Yeah, you were gonna you were gonna save that. For I was the, gonna save for it for the two. end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hour two. And before we depart, what's going on with your love life? What are you gonna get? Is the Greek chop an option? Can I get it? I'm gonna get that with no tomato, please. No tomato. All right. What are you gonna get? I'm gonna get crispy artichokes mm, the, and the chopped salad. Great. Are you okay with the soppressata, the queso fresco, everything that comes on that? Uh huh. Awesome. I am. Thank Ready? you. Thank you very much. You know, our early days in L.A. together, you know, we did live close to one another on the east side of L.A. Sure. And I knew, you know, you were you were out to your friends. You, uh-huh. were, you were gay. Uh-huh. You were enjoying your life as a gay man. You were, uh-huh. we were going to Akbar together. Yeah, we which to is the Akbar quite a lot. One of uh, the best bars in Los Angeles on the east side. We were there quite a bit. We sure were. Um, and I do remember also, like, when— Backpack. Oh, backpack. <laughs> there was a guy at Akbar who was wearing a backpack. And just, he was wearing just, a backpack. Zach and I both thought that um, he was bar. really handsome. Yeah, he was wearing a backpack in the bar. And Zach yeah. and I thought he was both really handsome. And Zach ended up having a... Knowing him. Knowing him, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about backpack. Yeah, backpack. But, I mean, I, those moments were so special. Like, just having that sort of safety net in L.A., having someone who was a part of the, the queer community, although you hadn't come out publicly at that point mm-hmm. yet, but like, you know, someone I felt safe with mm-hmm. and like showing me to all these places, having a, a wingman, you know, to, to be a single man in Los Angeles and yeah. go to these places. And I also remember one night leaving that bar and across the street above the Tang's Donut was a huge billboard for Heroes. Oh, yeah. And been right after you had joined Heroes. Right. So I was also watching... Because I, I moved to LA. I was part of a sitcom that did not succeed. I've kept my anonymity pretty much intact. There was a few people who maybe knew who I was, but you mm-hmm. were you were thrust onto this wildly popular show yeah. mid-season in the first year mm-hmm. as, a, as a character that had been talked about a yeah. lot in the series. Yep. You were the villain mm-hmm. that finally made an appearance, mm-hmm. uh, Siler. Do you want some of these um, artichokes? Look, what is this, artichokes it's and a, fries? It looks like a little... Um, Poo-poo platter? Yeah. Poo-poo platter fried things. Okay. Delicious. So good. I got to watch you, you know, a a friend, uh, what I considered a contemporary, Mm -hmm. sort of move into this other area of success. And it was the first time... I mean, I guess I saw it a little bit with Liz Banks, but like, I yep. mean, I wasn't going out to gay bars with her. Sure. Um, you know, it was the first time I was seeing a friend of mine sort of like in real time 
have a great break mm-hmm. and, and sort of also navigate what that meant for his personal life. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit to like what that, because this is, again, before you came out publicly, which right. we'll, we will get to, but like, what was that like for you? Because in my eyes, you didn't change too mm-hmm. much of mm-hmm. your behavior. Yeah, I really didn't. And that's a commitment I made to myself early on when I realized that my experiences in the world were changing a bit. You know, I made a real conscious decision and commitment to myself that I would not change my experiences of the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wasn't going to allow exposure or fame, celebrity, to define my experience or to define who I was. I think my friends and the people that were close to me and that I trusted before all that happened became even more important to mm-hmm. me. And uh, and I had been at it for a while. I think it was eight years that I was in LA before Heroes mm-hmm. happened. And Heroes was really the, the project that changed my trajectory. And then immediately after Heroes, I got Star Trek. And so that year of my life, it was the year I turned 30. It was so crazy, you yeah. know, for one thing to happen that felt like, oh my God, look, I've achieved this thing. And then six months later, this other thing happened. Right. And it was like, oh, I can't even, it felt like hitting the lottery twice, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, in those moments with heroes, when you were like meeting the cast, yeah. or meeting the people in the hair and makeup trailer, right. sort of like, not necessarily like the executives or, you know, maybe uh-huh. even like the writers, like, were you open about who you were like in your private life? Were you guarded? Were there certain people that you were telling things to or sharing things with and certain people you weren't? Were you, um, compartmentalizing and like kind of keeping that out of the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't leading with it. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I was talking about openly. It wasn't something that I was actively trying to hide. Okay, You know, when you and I were coming up, it was a completely different time. And the idea of being gay was entirely different than it is now. I mean, the changes that we've experienced in the last 15 years in our culture, our society, and our business are momentous. So it was something that I still felt like I needed to control. Mm -hmm. There was a sense of needing to you know, decide what the narrative would be. I mean, those were those were the days for when, fear of lack of opportunity. Yeah, like. I think for fear of for fear of fear, just for fear of you know, we were conditioned to be afraid of um, being gay. That's yeah. just the truth. I mean, you know that that's true of my upbringing. You know, I was raised very Catholic, and yeah. you know, the church, the way that things were instilled in me as a kid. Um, led me to believe that there was something wrong with that part of me. Yeah, right? me too, me too. I mean, yeah. that was the days when, like, Perez Hilton was still, like, outing people. You know, if someone caught a whiff that you might be gay, then all of a sudden this this kind of attention got paid to you that was, there was an insidiousness to it and there mm-hmm. was a, a perniciousness to it. And so I was definitely aware of that. I mean, I was out to everybody in my life. right. By that time, my friends and my family. Um, well, but, you, you were operating on a day to day. Like, if you wanted to go out to a gay bar, you, there, yeah. you were not worrying no, about that. No, I wasn't. And there were people that would see you sure. and, like, maybe talk. And, like, that was not totally. something I didn't, that seemed yeah. to make you nervous at all. No, it was more of a public narrative than right. anything else, right? It was my life as an actor and my career was something that I was very measured about. And I was very, for those first years of success, you know, it, it, it took me five years after Heroes, you know, until I came out publicly. Coming to the, that self-realization yourself is, is incredibly important and it needs to be on your own timeline. Yeah, it's, I mean, coming out is an incredibly personal journey and it is an evolution and it feels like, especially when you're in the public eye and making the declaration of 
identifying as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, there are other considerations. And I think you can't be an effective contributor to the broader cause unless you've arrived there in an authentic yeah. way. And nobody can define what that is except yourself. I was aware of it. And um, and yeah, and then eventually, like when I started getting closer with castmates and people in, in, in the world of the show, I started to, you know, acknowledge that to them. And I can remember being at Comic-Con for a panel for heroes. And this was a, this was a defining moment. It was one of those big panels mm -hmm. at Comic-Con in like mm -hmm. Hall H with like thousands and thousands of people. And this moderator was a well-known filmmaker and he was doing the interview and then he, at the end, he said something. I don't think he said faggot, but he definitely said something like, wow. he made some reference, not to me. He was like, it was, he was interviewing and it was mm -hmm. a gay reference. And I was absolutely furious. I was so angry. I couldn't believe that it had happened, that he had said it. And, uh, and, and it was so casual, like cavalier. And we got off the stage and I was, I was so mad. That was for me a moment because I hadn't come out yet. You know, I hadn't been out publicly and mm -hmm. I hadn't even been out to everybody in, in my show. And I just remember fuming and, and talking to our showrunner and our producers. We were all hanging out afterwards and just like the level of support that I got from everybody was so uh, overwhelming mm. and the sense of understanding. And there was a lot that was unsaid and unspoken from my position, you know, I, obviously they didn't need to know why I was so upset by it, right? Or they, they knew why I was so upset by it, I didn't need to say it, you know? And that was a moment for me that sort of really softened the boundaries around my relationship with my castmates and my coworkers, my colleagues. There was and, unspoken understanding. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. they saw that it had affected me so personally. And even though I hadn't explicitly come out to them, sure. <laughs> that it didn't take much to figure it out. And it was things like that, right, that I think over time made me more comfortable and more confident in my authentic self. And over, you know, the next few years, I was able to find my way to making a more, a more of a public acknowledgement mm -hmm. of, of my identity. Right, which eventually happened when you were doing Angels in America. It didn't happen when I was doing Angels in America. Actually, interestingly, I thought it would. I thought it did. No, I did Angels in America in 2010. Um, I didn't come out publicly until a year later, 2011, actually. So when I was doing Angels in America, obviously I thought, well, this is this is going to be the moment. Did, and just to pause really yeah, briefly, yeah. like Angels in America is like this iconic, it's, it is the, the, the crown jewel of queer theater. Yeah. Written by the Tony Kushner, yep. the brilliant Tony Kushner, mm -hmm. won the Pulitzer Prize, won Tony Awards, yep. and this you were involved in the first New York revival of right. this yep. this piece, and there was a lot of eyes on it, a lot yep. of excitement around it. Yeah, it was originally um, done in 1994, and we did the first New York revival at the Signature Theater right. in 2010. So I was being interviewed for a, a profile in the New York Times, and I had this interview with this journalist, and he asked me this question right at the end. He said, you know, there's a lot of speculation online mm. about who you're dating and if you're, you know, if you're dating or who you're dating. And I just wonder what that's like, you know, do you, and I, and I just remember like sitting there with him and being like, oh my God, is it going to happen? What's happening? I can't do that. And I just, I remember saying like, oh, I really copped out. And I said something like, well, I'm much more interested in what people have to say about my work 
than about who I'm dating. Which you know? in Hollywood yeah. journalist totally. terms Probably is like, like yeah, okay, <laughs> sure, honey. Um, we get it. Okay. <laughs> Um, but I just wasn't in that moment. I just wasn't ready. Yeah, I wasn't ready to do but it. But going back to what I'm saying, you have to be ready. You have yeah, to control yeah, that narrative. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's no. Don't feel bad about that. No, no, I, I don't feel bad about it. Uh, uh, you know, I did feel. But like you were flagging it as a, an opportunity, and a you, missed opportunity in okay. that moment. Okay. And and I and I did feel like there was part of me that felt like, oh my god, you know, here I'm doing this play about the AIDS epidemic, and you know, so much about honoring the. Um, the people who died and, you know, uh, like my forebears and it, did I, did I squander that opportunity? There was, there was that question mm -hmm. that I had for myself. And another thing that happened that same summer while I was doing Angels in America was the summer that the It Gets Better campaign was kind of at its peak, right? right? So people were all these, you know, people from the LGBTQ community and, and allies were making these videos to say it gets better. And all these young people were killing themselves. That's I don't know if you remember that, but yes. like there were a number of suicides of young people who were bullied and, you know, who, who just felt like there was no other way, no other, and, and they were killing themselves. And so that was really the genesis of the It Gets Better campaign. And I remember making an It Gets Better video that summer while I was doing Angels in America, but I hadn't come out publicly. So, so for me, the video was, you know, I stand with, uh, as an ally, you know, I didn't acknowledge my own identity as a gay man, but I said, like, I support all these these people and, you know, any young people, like, you know, it does get better and whatever. I joined, I think I said something like, I joined the chorus of voices who are rising up again, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, and put that video out, you know, and so I was doing this play and I was living my life and, you know, going out and dating people and having Not all these me. experiences. Not, Not Jesse Tyler Ferguson, no, but um, <laughs> others. Yes. And, uh, and 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 yet a backpack, no backpack had, had sailed. That ship had sailed by yeah. then. But yes, you know, uh, and having these experiences and not living an authentic life, you know. So, and the play was incredible. I mean, I had an amazing time doing that play and living in New York. And so that was really that that for that time. And then a year later, I was doing. Uh, by this time, now I was dating. Was I dating Jonathan by now? I think I was. Yeah, because we you met, were, yeah. yeah we met. Oh, here we go. Yes. Here it comes. Salad's coming in. Uh oh. From a distance. My special salad. Too, Do you want those um, artichokes or are you done? I, I think I might be okay with them. I'm are good. You? Yeah, no, okay, I was yeah, a good you taste. Take, yeah. You can take them. We're going to be just a small table. Chopped salad. Thank, Thank you. you. It is you a very intimate table. Them. Right at the climax of the story. <laughs> the salad's I know. <laughs> now for a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, we'll hear more about Zach's decision to come out the way he did. Okay, be right back. I love what I do. I also love the idea of not doing it one day, but it's getting harder to know the best way to move forward into the future towards retirement. We hear about inflation, rate hikes, the changing market, gotta get the kids through college, build an emergency fund, and then there's retirement. Here's where Fidelity comes in. Fidelity can help you find clarity in saving for the future, even as your path and priorities evolve. How? Well, they'll help you create a free personalized plan that adapts as your priorities change. They'll also show you what's called timely insights, small tips on ways to save and invest to help meet your goals. And you can monitor your plan so you stay on target. The future's coming and so is retirement. Fidelity can help you take it on your way. 
Learn more at fidelity.com slash future. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. Sometimes when I've had a long day, honestly, the last thing I want to do is think about what to eat, even though I, I love to cook. I mean, sometimes, let's just face it, we don't want to spend the time figuring out the ingredients, the recipe, going to the grocery store, and then you got to face the cleanup. That's when Factor comes in. I just pop one of their delicious meals in the microwave for two minutes, and voila, I have a restaurant-quality meal. I personally like to plate it and make it look pretty, and I tell myself, wow, look at this beautiful pork shop you just threw together. I love that Factor is flexible with my lifestyle. I can cater it to my dietary needs. Like, let's say I'm leaning vegetarian one month or keto the next And I can change how many meals I get week to week to fit my schedule. I seriously look forward to the Tuesday delivery date in that Factor box on my doorstep. So why not give it a try? Head to factormeals.com slash dinners50 and use code dinners50 to get 50% off. That's code dinners50 at factormeals.com slash dinners50 to get 50% off. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. We were just talking about the period in his life when he decided to come out. At the time, he was dating Jonathan Groff, who you might know from Spring Awakening on Broadway or Mindhunter on Netflix. So I was dating Jonathan, and I had done Star Trek. So I had sort of reached a level of exposure, and I felt like my identity, the integration of my identity and my public life you know, was starting to close in, like the lines were starting to, you know, they're about to intersect. I mm-hmm. felt that way. I had produced my first film and, uh, and starred in the movie. It's called Margin Call. And, Excellent uh, film. Thank you. And, uh, and, a, and a pretty wonderful Oscar experience. Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated film. And I, uh, is he cute? <laughs> and I'm sorry that I didn't diverted anybody's attention to anybody other than this conversation. Um, so I was doing... I was doing press for Margin Call, and right around that time I had found out, I've told this story so many times, I don't know if it's even worth telling again, but I guess it really is, because it was like a, it was one of those moments where when we're talking about being ready, there was like a moment in my life where it went from like contemplation of this decision to come out publicly to absolute, like I had no choice in the matter. And it was that I, I read a story about a young kid who killed himself. His name was Jamie Rodemeyer. And I, and I was reading the story about him and his life. And in the story, it had mentioned that a few months before he took his own life, he made an It Gets Better video. I mean, I, I get really even talking about it now. It's so, I couldn't believe it. You know, it was mm-hmm. like that fact was included in the story about him, like, directly for me, mm-hmm. right? Because I just felt like here I was living this life of, of opportunity and privilege, and I was keeping this part of myself separate and private. And it was the first time, I think, that I realized the power of my voice in the broader conversation socially And I felt like I had no choice in the matter anymore at that time. And I was doing press for Margin Call. And so there was a lot of attention being paid to me at this time again. And I was doing another profile for New York Magazine. 
And I remember being, I was at Cafe Clooney, um, another place we've eaten together. Yes. And I was sitting with a journalist and I remember I made the decision the day before I went to do this profile mm -hmm. that I was going to come out. And I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my publicist. I didn't tell my friends. I didn't ask anybody to guide me or advise me. I didn't tell Jonathan. I didn't tell anyone. I just made the decision that I was going to. With uh, much more vindictive, you were, you were more vindictive, vindictive is the wrong word. You were more, um, <laughs> get this boy <laughs> but there was much more vindication this time around than there was before when you thought I might come out in this New York Times piece. I still don't think vindication is the right Vind word either. Okay, what word do you think? Uh, conviction. Conviction. I think is what you're looking for, right? There was no question in the matter for me to the point where... You know, again, at that time, I think even still today, like coming out publicly, a lot of people would consult their team mm -hmm. and talk to their publicists sure. to make sure everybody's on board with it. And for me, it was absolutely no question in my mind that that was going to be what I did. And so I went to this interview at Cafe Clooney and I was sitting with this journalist and he brought up Angels in America and was mm. talking to me about, you know, what it was like to do that play. And I just simply referred to myself as a gay man. I said the words, well, you know, as a gay man, having that experience for me was dot, dot, dot. And I could feel him. He was like taking notes. And I felt him like, as I said that, like, he stopped the writing, his pen like hovered. And, and I mm. felt him sort of like, did that just happen? Like, did what I think happened just happen? Like, and and then he just you know kept going and so a few minutes later I was like did he get it like was that enough like mm -hmm. whatever so then I referred to myself again as a gay man in the same you know again and uh, and that did the trick I think it was like about a week that you know lead time like we did the interview and the article was coming out like a week or so later and so I finished the interview and then I went home and then I told everybody right mm -hmm. I told my team and mm -hmm. I called my publicist and I said I just want you to know what I've done. Everybody was incredibly supportive, and that began the conversation in a public way. And so when the article came out, obviously, the headline was that, and I drafted a statement. I think I had a website at the time. It was like when people still had websites, but <laughs> I drafted a statement, and Sorry, I net. put it on my, my website, yeah, my blog or whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, that was it. You know, it, it certainly got picked up all yeah, over the place. Sure. And but this is also the era of TR Knight coming out on the cover of People Magazine and Neil Patrick Harris. And I, I find that sort of range of ways you can come out publicly kind of fascinating and how you sit in that range, I think is very fascinating and, all, and also very true to who you are. Mm -hmm. um, it felt very authentic. Did you have like kind of an awareness of that as you were, well, obviously you had a plan to, to talk about this, but. Yeah, for me, I did it on my own terms, in my own time, without the advice or counsel of anyone but myself. And uh, I think it informed the work that I've been able to do subsequently on behalf of some of these young people, especially right. who have struggled and, and have suffered as a result of not being accepted and in a lot of cases not accepting themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the first things I did after I came out publicly was contact the Trevor Project in Los Angeles um, because that was an organization that I had supported for years quietly and anonymously. And the work that they do is uh, it's sorry, a hotline. It's a, yeah, the Trevor Project is an anti suicide hotline essentially and they do incredible work i mean it's really to me one of the most 
phenomenal organizations to benefit the LGBTQ plus community and young people in particular mm -hmm. in the community. And I had supported them for years anonymously, donating money and whatever, but I could never obviously publicly support them. And so I immediately reached out to them and went into their offices in Los Angeles and got a tour and met the people that ran the organization yeah. and met volunteers. And by the end of that visit, I had committed to go through the Lifeline training to become a Lifeline operator on the phones. Yeah. So for the next year, year and a half, wow. I would go and do shifts at the Trevor Project and man the phones and talk to young people who were contemplating taking their own lives. That must and have been incredibly impactful. Absolutely incredible. So like the level of work that I was able to do to make a, an actionable difference mm -hmm. in the lives of people was so phenomenal and it felt so gratifying. And then just being able to be a visible ally and to be somebody in the community who was able to say like, look, you know, it's possible to be true to who you are and to still succeed and to still have opportunities yeah. and to not be defined by it. No, for sure. And you have had really wonderful success after coming out and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so proud of you. And how long had you been doing Star Trek when you came out? We had done the first movie. Mm -hmm. Which was incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. I came out in 2011. We made the first movie. The first movie came out in 2009. Mm -hmm. The second movie came out in 2013. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of between the two films. Yeah. Do you think you would have been able to come to a meeting place with your sexuality during um, Like a press first... junket for, for Star yeah. Trek? Something yeah. so... Um, well, that was the other thing that I loved about... I didn't do it on anyone else's turf, right? I didn't do it on Paramount's dime, right? right. I wasn't being trotted around by a yeah. huge yeah. studio. I was doing it in conjunction with press for a movie that only happened because I wanted it to happen. Right. I, I'm, I didn't have to think about it, right? Again, it was like a matter of the right time and the right place and the right project. And, and mm -hmm. you know, I didn't have to worry about like, oh, is the studio going to be pissed at me because I came out in conjunction with putting out this, you know, $150 million movie. Was there a discussion with them about no, it? No, I didn't have a discussion about it with anybody. Or did they have any thoughts about it? Or? I mean, the only person that I had an explicit conversation with about from the Star Trek world was JJ. Mm -hmm. I was having lunch with JJ in anticipation of starting the second movie. So this was just, you know, about maybe six months after I'd come out. And I remember vividly, we were having lunch at Sony and, and just sort of catching up and talking about the movie. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the lunch, he said, uh, he said, "Oh yeah, I just I, I heard you. I heard you came out." And I said, "Oh yeah, I, yeah, I, that, yeah, I did." You know, and he was like, "That's incredible, man! I'm so proud of you. Amazing. So happy for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, just nothing but support and love, and you know, just like again, like the people that I've been fortunate enough to work with are people who recognized that I was stepping into a fuller version of myself and a more authentic and integrated version of who I am, and and I was met with nothing but encouragement and yeah. love." So hard to eat this salad while we're here. Take a bite. Take a bite. Just one little bite. You just take a bite. I won't even talk over you. What Subscribe and read and read to podcast here. First of all, did you know I auditioned for Star Trek for the for Simon Pegg's role? No, I had no yes, idea. Yes, it would, did not go well. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and I no remember way. you never told me that. Yeah, it was a really bad audition. First of all, I've been mistaken for Simon Pegg several times. Wow. To the point where one time I just I just gave in. I was like, sure, what do you want me to sign? Right. And I signed his name on Great. something. I won't tell <laughs> I was like, do we do we think that maybe it's strange that I've just dropped my accent with you, ma'am? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I, I do remember, you know, when all that was happening for you and it was so exciting. And I remember you saying though, like you weren't 
a fan of the franchise. Right. I wasn't either. I was yeah. very unaware of it. I mean, I, I even Star Wars, like just supernatural yeah. space stuff. I, I was not stuff. my genre. Right, right. It just wasn't my genre. Yeah, at me all. neither. What was it like for you to not only take on a role and at that point share a role with someone who was still yeah. alive, yeah. but to enter a universe mm. in which the fandom mm -hmm. knows so much more about this character mm -hmm. than you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was much more of a Star Wars kid than I was a Star Trek kid. I never really got it, right? So for me, I knew what a great opportunity it was, creatively and professionally both, because it's an iconic role. Obviously, it's so popular and so beloved for a reason. And and for me, it was really all about the opportunity to work with JJ. I thought, well, obviously, this feels like a dream progression in my career. And, and I had by happenstance, the, the the show that I had become so known for and so kind of sought after for was a sci-fi kind yeah. of yeah. show. So the progression was incredibly logical. And so it happened really organically. I had found out that they were making the movie. Somebody that I know in my life like sent me a message and said, hey, I hear they're making a new Star Trek movie. You should play Spock. And it had never occurred to me, of course, before that moment. And I thought, oh, wow, like that does make kind of real sense, you know? And because I was doing so much press for heroes, journalists were asking me questions about like, what else do you want to do? What else do you have in store? Like, what's your dream role? And so I was giving an interview for some publication and I just said, oh, I, I hear they're making a new Star Trek movie. I'd love to play Spock. And this started the conversation and it infused like that idea into yeah. the press and to the point where April Webster, who was casting the movie, had read an article in which I had talked about it. And uh, when they started casting the movie, I was the first person they saw. I was the only person mm -hmm. they saw. For I remember Spock. that when they when I went to audition for it, they told me like, yeah. you know, your friend Zachary's playing this part. He's brilliant. Uh. He's so, I mean, the, the way they rolled out the compliments for you. Well, that's very The only sweet. person we saw. Yeah, He's yeah. perfect. You're going to be wonderful. You should definitely do Fantastic, this with him. Right? And then I ended up giving the worst audition of my oh, life. Oh, But wow. no, that you were. Yeah, it was, it was just a fait accompli. It was yeah. really weird. I, I remember going in in April of 2007 and the night before my audition, I met Leonard Nimoy. We were doing an event for, uh, I think, like a TV. Accidentally? Yeah, well, I mean, like, we were we were being presented with an award at, like, the TV Land Awards or something okay. like that, you know, as a cast for Heroes. And uh, it was, like, the Future Classic Award. And it was presented to us by Leonard Nimoy. And I met him as we were walking off stage, you know, after the award had been given out. And this point you had been cast? No. You had My audition been. was the next day. Oh, okay. I met him the night oh, wow. before my audition. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't tell him that I was auditioning. I didn't, you know, we just had a quick Can hello. Can you imagine? <laughs> it was insane. And then the next day I went in and read for April Webster. She put me on tape. And then the day after that, I remember leaving the country because I was going on a press junket for heroes in Europe. And so I left for that the next day and I was gone in Europe for like five or six weeks. And then I came back to New York. I planned my 30th birthday party in Los Angeles and I flew back to my... Were you there at that party? That I might I had? have been. Yeah, you might have been. I flew back to Los Angeles on June 1st. I had my birthday party on June 2nd. On June 4th, I went in and had my follow-up audition with JJ, where I just met JJ. I didn't even audition. I just sat and talked with him for 35 minutes. And before I even got home, I got the call that I got the job. And so it was two days after my 30th birthday. Oh so that that progression was like so insane. Do you remember yeah. what went through your head and your body when you learned you were going to play Spock? Yeah, that? I mean, I just, I mean, it was like that. Seems like 
I mean, that's a huge deal. It was. It was definitely, you know, again, I, I was already in this space where, like, my life had changed so dramatically in the, in the previous year. I had all, all, right. really achieved everything I thought in my imagination, you know, like, when I was in school and when I was auditioning and waiting tables and all the years that I spent kind of dreaming about what it would mean to succeed in this business— Heroes was it, right? Yeah. Like I never even thought beyond that because to be a series regular on such a popular television series and, you know, to have all these people sort of know me for my work, like that was what the dream was. Sure. So then on top of that, to get this opportunity to work with someone like J.J. Abrams and to play a role like this in this iconic franchise and to be in this huge tentpole m movie, it was just insane. It was well, really let's, crazy. Let's, I, I wanted to talk about that. And I do want to talk about that, but after a quick break. When we come back, I'll talk to Zach about his special bond with the original Spock, Leonard Nimoy, and how his mom's death changed the way he looked at his own life. You know what I love for breakfast? I love French toast. You know what I never make for myself at home? French toast. Why? Because the carb fear is real. But carb-heavy foods are often the ones we love the most. Hero Bread makes those same delicious favorites free of consequences or compromises. They've remade carby, empty-calorie bread products into fluffy, delicious versions that include no net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and fewer calories, plus protein and fiber. And you know what? Their products are delicious. And what I really love about them is that my kids also love Hero Bread. Hero Bread has something for every craving, from sliced bread loaves and buns to tortillas. Plus, monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites like the 2-gram net carb Hero Croissants or the 1-gram net carb Hero Cheddar Biscuits. Oh my gosh, those sound amazing. Don't give up being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero Co. and use code DINNER at checkout. That's DINNER at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Don't you just love it when someone looks at you and says, hmm, something's different about you. What were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake than ever. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and wider for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes, and you know you can trust them because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Loam, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying, something's different about you, but in the best possible way. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. I, I wanted to talk about that, having the responsibility of playing that role and being someone who, like you said, didn't know a ton about mm -hmm. it. There's very few people in this industry who get to share mm -hmm. the history of a character with someone. Well, that became it for me. Like right. that, that was the gift that I never could have foreseen, which was... Leonard Nimoy, for those of you who don't know who originated the role of Spock, was involved in the movie and was involved in it from the beginning mm. and actually had 
contractual consultation mm. on who would be cast as as Spock. And so I knew going into it that he supported me. He saw my audition. You mm -hmm. know, we actually met in an elevator at Comic Con when they were announcing. So I got the job in June, but we I wasn't allowed to say anything about it for two months. You know, like while they were casting the rest of the movie, but they didn't cast the rest of the movie because we didn't start shooting until November. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I wasn't allowed to say anything about it until they made the announcement at Comic-Con. That was where they officially announced that I would be playing the role. And so that's where I met Leonard. They did this whole thing in Hall H, you know, 5,000 people and, and they brought Leonard out and then they introduced me. And so it was like, that's where it all happened. And I met Leonard in a crowded elevator. There must've been, you know, in this huge freight elevator in the, in the bowels of the convention center in San Diego. And I remember... The elevator goes up and uh, and the publicists or the people from the movie are like, all right, let's do this. Everybody ready? And Leonard mm -hmm. just looked at me and he said, you have no idea what you're in for. Oh, wow. And then he like walked out of the elevator and I was like, oh, okay. And then we did this thing and, you know, and I made the announcement and he was great. He was just such an amazing man. He was so incredible. His spirit and his um, his presence were just so really, really wonderful. Do you remember incredible. how old he was when you He would have been, he was definitely like 74 maybe okay. uh, in 2007. Mm -hmm. Third act. Uh, third act yeah. for sure. I mean, he and he embraced his third act with so much. He was just such an incredible man and curious mind and creative spirit all, all the way up to the end. But no, he was a renaissance man in the truest sense. And and what, as I feel like you are as well. Well, I mean. Don't and, put your banjo skills down. Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> cheers, cheers. You know, that was the beginning of, as they say, a beautiful friendship. And so for me, it was like, I didn't really care that I didn't know a lot about the mm -hmm. franchise because I had him. Him is his blessing. And his, his blessing sure. and, his, and, his, and his guidance and his, his accessibility. Like he just, he just was like, look, I'm not going to tell you how to do this. You know how to do this. You know the fundamentals of the character. I might not know all the ins and outs of the canon or the, you know, whatever. But mm. I know the essential duality of this character. I know the emotional and psychological and intellectual complexity yeah. of the character. And he was just a great just a great cheerleader and a great support. Sure. And, you know, the, the thing that I would never have anticipated from my experiences was just how close we would be mm -hmm. and how much he would feel. And you know, I lost my father when I was seven. Yeah. And obviously, like the physical resemblance notwithstanding, there was something very paternal mm -hmm. about the relationship that I shared with Leonard. And I think we both felt it. And we spent many, many, many times, like, you know, we the, the last decade of his life, anytime we were in the same city, we were together. I would go to their house many times, you know, out to meals. They would come to my house. I mean, we were just always, any chance we got, I really took great pleasure in getting to know Leonard. And I and I never would have imagined what a friend he would become. Yeah. And When did he pass? He died in 2015, February yeah. 27th, 2015, I think. He was 83. What a life. He died. Yeah, what an incredible life. And what a life well lived mm -hmm. is, is the other thing. I'm so glad that the world brought you together and you had that time with him. I mean, I, I try and look at that friendship through like what the what, what his lens might have been. Like, you know, he's someone who had had such great success in this community and in this industry. Mm -hmm. And then to be at that point in, in his life and develop this relationship with someone who's going to inherit the blueprint mm -hmm. that he literally laid down. Mm -hmm. Like, what a gift mm -hmm. for him to like have those, you know, some of his last years. I think it's really beautiful. And to be a part of it. Yeah, he was in the, he was in the first two movies that we did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really remarkable. It was special. Um, I know you also lost your mom not too long ago. I did, yeah. And I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank I you. know that was 
a, a tough transition. It was a long road with my mom. She yeah. was sick for a long time. She had dementia. And, um, you know, I say she didn't die of COVID, but she died because of COVID. She got COVID. Mm -hmm. She had been in an assisted living facility, you know, toward the end of her life. And we found this incredible place that took incredible care of her. But unfortunately, you know, just one of the mm -hmm. byproducts of the pandemic was that a lot of those places where a large population of vulnerable, mm -hmm. vulnerable people were together, you know, if the virus got into the population, then it spread. And yeah. a, a lot of times, you know, people in those situations can't always communicate how they're feeling. And so it was a bad recipe, you know, yeah. and, and it found its way into her assisted living community and uh, and she got it and she actually survived it. She was in the hospital for three weeks alone. I mean, just mm -hmm. horrifying, but she never really recovered. And so shortly after um, she got out of the hospital, it just became clear that she wasn't going to bounce back. Yeah. And uh, as difficult as it was, I will say it was the single most profound experience of my entire life. And I got to be with her mm -hmm. because she was not well, we decided to enroll her in a hospice program, and it was a program that would come to her so she didn't have to leave where she was familiar and, and where she was already living. They would come to her, and once we enrolled her in this hospice program, that lifted the visitation restrictions that were associated with the pandemic. So I was able to go, and I, I paid one visit to her in the end of January. I remember it was during the inauguration of Joe Biden, and so we watched that together, mm -hmm. and, you know, she was pretty nonverbal by that time. She was maybe about 15%, you know, verbal, I would say. She didn't have a lot of words, but she knew who I was. And I spent four days with her then and, uh, and then went back to LA. My plan then was to kind of go and visit her again in March. But in mid-February, they called and they said, you know, there's something going on and we don't know what it is, but we don't like it. And so I did, just got on the next flight and went to be with her. And then I ended up being with her for the last seven days of her life, literally just her and me. And uh, it was pretty intense. I'm sure. It was pretty crazy and um, an incredibly, you know, the greatest honor of my life was, was it being able to hold space for my mom as she was leaving her body. And it was really special. And also to go through your, your entire, almost your entire existence, obviously at age seven, you lost your father, but like mm -hmm. to be... A, a part of a family where you only have one parent. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine, because I mean, we're all getting at that age where like our parents are ailing mm -hmm. and, and I, I see this happening with many of my friends, you mm -hmm. know, all of a sudden it's, they're at that place where like, okay, now one of my parents is gone. Now both of my parents mm -hmm. are gone. Like that is a, that there is a, an emotional transition that happens when you lose your parent. I imagine mm -hmm. I'm, I'm obviously still have mine yeah. with me, but I'm, I'm curious to what it feels like, or if there is a, if there's something that happens to you internally yeah. when you finally say goodbye to yeah. your, your parents right. and, well, you know, losing Leonard again, yeah. like a, a few years before that, yeah. it's, it's uh, gotta be quite impactful. It is. I mean, um, I am no stranger to death. And uh, I think, you know, losing a parent at such a young age, being confronted with existential things like death at, at the age of seven, right? Mortality and, mm -hmm. you know, these concepts and these ideas that you're never supposed to deal with at that age, mm -hmm. right? Um, as traumatic as it was, 
it's also been an incredible gift in my life. And my relationship to death and my relationship to the tenuousness of our existence is something that I feel has informed me as a person to a degree for which I'm incredibly grateful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not afraid of it. I'm not put off by it. I'm, I'm curious about it. Not death itself. Well, yeah, death itself. But um, you know, the existential, the spiritual implications of what is next and what else mm-hmm. is out there. And I think it's informed a lot of my sense of seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for that, I'm, I'm so grateful. You know, I'm, I want to go deeper. I want to look in the places where people don't always want to shine the light, you know, right. and I find myself just contemplating, like, where am I in my life, right? I just turned 46 last week. Um, Happy birthday. Thank you, Jesse. I wasn't fishing. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm very much in the mid <clears throat> point. And, uh, and I have no parents. Mm-hmm. I have no children. I have no partner at the moment. Great dogs. I have wonderful dogs. The best dogs on the planet. But, you know, I think there's been a part of me that sort of wrestled with, like, well, wait a minute, you know, like, should I be somewhere else in my life? If I filter it through the lens of conventional expectations, I'm on an untraditional path, right? I'm, I mean, I'm I'm in a different spot than a lot of my friends. And I think there have been times where I've questioned whether or not I should be here or why am I here? Or, you know, is there something defective about my experience that, mm. you know, I don't have these hallmarks of a traditional life that many people measure success by. But lately, and this incredible thing has happened in the time since I lost my mom, which is my perspective has shifted entirely to recognize what a gift my life is and how incredibly lucky I am to have the autonomy that I have, to be able to do the work on myself and to dig more deeply because I don't have to worry about getting my kids up. And I've never been happier to be childless in my entire <laughs> life. I really have to say, you know, as much as I know children bring joy to the lives of others, and I know you have two beautiful kids and so many of my friends do. Um, and I love, you know, living vicariously through them and spending time with their kids. And then it's exhausting. nothing makes me happier than when I'm like, bye guys, yeah, have a good day. Yeah, I totally get um, it. And I just get to live this life. I've just recognized the abundance of my life so fully lately. And I do think losing my mom was a huge part of that, right? Because it was like, no matter what, my mom was always a tether. You know, my mom was always a tether emotionally. My mom in the later years in her life was a tether financially. You know, I was responsible for her. Mm-hmm. I was, And I always knew I would be. From a very young age, I saw the writing on the wall because my mom never remarried, never dated again after my dad. And she channeled a lot of energy into me that would generally be reserved for a spouse. And that was part of the complexity of our relationship, right. the reliance on me emotionally, which came from, uh, you know, a, a, an unexamined narcissistic place. And I don't fault her for that. I don't blame her for that. But my mother was a narcissistic person. I mean, she definitely suffered from narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. Um, I could see it clearly, even though she never could. But um, but I don't I don't begrudge her that. I don't. You know, she did the best she could with the skills she had and the resources she had. And and I'm grateful to my mom. And I love my mom uh, really fully now. Um, but but that something did happen in losing her, which was this sense of freedom, this sense mm-hmm. of liberation, this sense of. I was a good son. I did everything that ever could have been expected of me and more. And now I get to live this life for myself. So I feel the way I see it now is that it's this kind of 
I'm doing this work to create the life into which I am inviting the person that I'll get to share it with. And, and when that person shows up, the work will always be happening, but a lot of the work will have been done. Right. And I get to do that now. I get to go wherever I want, whenever I want. I can travel. I can... Yeah. Okay. You're, now you're just rubbing it in. Sorry, honey. <laughs> sorry, honey. Um, but yeah, you know, I just I feel really like okay, this is exciting. You can do theater I can whenever do you want. Theater. I can come home whenever I want That's to. Right. No, I mean, you know, look, I know there's value in all experiences, and 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 I do look at, you know, you and Justin, and and you know, I I love the life you've built for yourselves, and I know your kids are a huge part of that, and I of course, you know, I'm not saying I'll never have them. But I don't know, man. It's. It, I think the part of me that thought I needed to have them or that I really wanted them right. um, has kind of taken a bit of a secondary position for the moment. And uh, yeah. My, uh, listen, Al Pacino, I just read, is having his oh, Jesus, another really? kid and he's in his 80s. Is that true? Yes. Wow. That's right. So you know what? You got time, kid. Well, it is never too late. <laughs> it is never too late. I mean, it would have to be... It would have to be in deep partnership with somebody. Of course. I don't see you as the type of person who is going to just like decide to go on this journey by well, themselves. Well, you never know. You never know. I think I'd be a good dad. I You'd think be a I great would, dad. Yeah, I think I would be. And so who knows? But for right now, I'm really enjoying and celebrating my freedom. Yeah, and I get it. in a way that really makes me feel empowered. Yeah. So, and not just freedom from from children, but right now, just freedom in general. Yeah. We'll see. Did you have enough to eat? I did. I yeah. ate the chicken. I picked up the salad. It's hard to eat and talk. I know, I know. I get it. I mean, I love the format of this podcast, but like, how do we do it? You're doing it right now. I did do it. Here we go. <laughs> Wherever you listen to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having dinner with me. My God, thank Lunch you with me. so we much. This. Oh, we're saying, well, you know, dinner's on me. So that's the, the name of the podcast. We're having dinner. Can I leave the yeah. tip? No, 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 no. I got it all. You do? Yeah. Um, thank you for having me. <laughs> Next time on Dinners on Me, actress and podcaster Busy Phillips will get into how her move to New York changed her life and her marriage, her relationship with Tina Fey, and why, since the overruling of Roe v. Wade, it's been so important to her to be an advocate for reproductive rights. And if you don't want to wait until next week to listen, you can download that episode right now by subscribing to Dinners on Me Plus. As a subscriber, you not only get access to new episodes one week early, you'll also be able to listen to them completely ad-free. Just click Try Free at the top of the Dinners on Me show page on Apple Podcasts to start your free trial today. Dinners on Me is a production of Neon Hum Media, Sony Music Entertainment, and A Kid Named Beckett Productions. It's hosted by yours truly. It's executive produced by me and Jonathan Hirsch. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Chloe Chobel is our associate producer. Sam Baer engineered this episode. Hans Dale She composed our theme music. Our head of production is Sammy Allison. Special thanks to Alexis Martinez and Justin Makita. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Join me next week. 